And as you're seated, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles, and um, you can open up to the book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible, just a small little book. Almost every morning, uh, weekday mornings, I listen to a podcast as I'm kind of getting ready to get out the door, um, doing a few things around the house, maybe even eating breakfast. It's a podcast called The Briefing, and it's run by a man by the name of Albert Moeller. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, the podcast essentially talks about current issues in the world, and, um, and it helps you view them through a Christian worldview, assess them, think about them, and process them, and just understand how the Word of God speaks to these things. I found it personally, find it personally encouraging and helpful in my own spiritual walk, and just in how I'm viewing um, the world around me, but from time to time, something really just jumps off the page, um, so to speak, and uh, really just rings true and is so fitting. And this week, as I was listening to this podcast, uh, Albert Moeller brought something up that was that he had found in the New York Times and in some British newspapers. And I want to I want to quote some things for you that I, I'm taking from him, and he's taking from some newspapers that are relevant to our text this morning. He quotes from the New York Times, and here's what it says: It says, "Visitors to some of England's most imposing and ancient cathedrals will come in and find carnival rides, a mini golf course, a lunar landscape, and." a lifelike model of the earth dangling from the ceiling. He's talking about cathedrals that are, um, some of them, um, almost a thousand years old who are being converted and turned into um, attractional areas. This is a real thing happening right now, okay? It says, inside, for example, um, Norwich Cathedral in the east of England, a colorful 50-foot-tall slide known as a helter-skelter winds past the 12th century stone pillars. Now, surprisingly, some people believe putting things like this in the church is a mistake. Shocking. But the bishop of this one church in particular Reverend uh, Jonathan Merrick uh, delivered his sermon in this church, in this cathedral, with this slide called the Helter Skelter. He delivered his sermon when they put the slide in from halfway up the slide. And the bishop said this. Just listen to the words, okay? Um, You think that's strange, putting a slide in church. Just listen to these words. Here's what he says as he's on the slide. God is a tourist attraction. And as he did this, um, the Helter Skelter slide, remember, is in the backdrop in this ancient cathedral, this cathedral which was designed, by the way, to demonstrate and to show off the transcendence and beauty of God is now being filled with things like a 55-foot tall slide. This in the background, he says that God is a tourist attraction. And then the bishop says this, we are told that and treated the congregation to, he treated the rendition, sorry, the congregation to a rendition of the Bee Gees song, as reflecting on the importance of smiles. This is his sermon. And he says this, God said the bishop wants to be attractive to us. For us to enjoy ourselves, each other, and the world around us, and this glorious helter-skelter, this is the actual quote, and this glorious helter-skelter is about just that, And this bishop goes on to say in his sermon, if we can call it that, enjoying ourselves is a good thing to do and God will be reveling in it and with us and all those who have found joy and fun and laughter here. Now, in this article it tells us, by the way, that um, before preaching the bishop had climbed to the top of this helter-skelter and he started edging his way until he was at the half point in the slide where he actually stopped to deliver his sermon. And then he received a loud cheer as he whooshed to the bottom at the end of the sermon. Now, I hope the silence in this room is indicative of the utter shock and horror of what's taking place in something called a church, in something that is supposed to be done for the name of God, a place that is supposed to be housing the name of God and praising the name of God, and yet this kind of thing is sadly not uncommon in this day and age. You say, well, why, why is this happening? And what's the point of even bringing this up this morning? Here's the point that I want to get to. Listen, belief leads to behavior, okay? Belief leads to behavior, but maybe more importantly and more relevant to our text this morning, behavior betrays our beliefs. 
The way we behave, the way we live, the way we act betrays what we truly believe about God. And, and so you, you see, putting something like a helter-skelter slide or a mini-putt course inside of the church as a means of attracting people and drawing people in and confusing the daylights out of people in terms of what it means to know God and love God and follow God is not indicative, listen, of simply just some practice that is offside. It's indicative of a full-scale belief system that is offside. It is demonstrating that their thoughts of God, their belief about God, and the reality of God is something very far from what the scriptures teach about God. And the greatest problem with this picture, and many other pictures, by the way, and the greatest problem with this theology is that it has nothing to do with pleasing God and everything to do with pleasing man. Did you catch that? It wasn't about how we please God. It was about how we please ourselves. And when we please ourselves, then we can be assured that God is pleased too. You see who the priority is there? It is a theology that is obsessed with self-indulgence, with pleasures, with the flesh, and a theology that ultimately has nothing to do with the God of the scriptures. And here's the real point that I want to get to in this. Listen, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And there are many who sow the seeds of the flesh that will reap the seeds of the judgment of God. There are many who will live to sow the seeds of worldliness, the desires of their own heart, and they are sowing and reaping the judgment of God and the punishment of God and the wrath of God. And that's exactly what Jude warns about in this passage as he goes after false teaching and false teachers. He is looking at the behaviors and he is demonstrating how the behaviors of these false teachers betray their true beliefs about God. And the consequences that await them are significant and serious. And as he does this, he's calling the church to watch out for people who would lead you down these paths. Don't fall prey to what seems appealing to your flesh, what even has hints and glimmers, glimpses of truth in it. Don't fall prey to that. Don't let them lead you away from God. You reap what you sow. They reap what they sow. But listen, church, here's the truth for you and for me. We reap what we sow in this life. And so the call from our text this morning is to fight to sow the seeds of the faith. That's what Jude is after to fight to sow the seeds of the faith. And we, we looked at the first four verses last week, and I want to read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 16. So let's read it together. Follow along with me. Here's what it says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ." Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of external, eternal excuse me, fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. 
These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead, uprooted, wild ways of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is a heavy, heavy text, fitting for a church barbecue day. <laughs> but this is such, listen, it is such an important text. The gravity of what is being spoken of here cannot, it cannot fall on deaf ears this morning. This is so critical to our spiritual development, health, and well-being because we are called to sow the seeds of the faith, the faith being the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true and sound body of doctrine that Jude has already commended us to contend for. And now he's going to go on and he's going to unpack, really explain verse 4. These certain people, these false teachers who have slid into the church, who are sowing these seeds of unrighteousness, of wickedness, of confusion. He wants to address these individuals. He wants to expose them for who they are. And he's going to do so in a very profound way. You see, Jude is a preacher. This letter reads like a sermon. It is intended to have profound and powerful rhetorical effect. The way he writes is so phenomenal. The imagery he uses, the illustrations he pulls in, the direct application he hits these people with and hits us with, it is powerful and we need to hear it as if he is preaching to us this morning. He looks at the present danger facing the church and he relates it to past events and what he wants to say is, listen, things never change, right? Things never change. It's always going to be like this. It's been like this in the past. It's like this today. It's gonna be like this in the future. Get ready. False teachers are coming in. False doctrine is coming in. People who are gonna promote ungodly behavior, they're coming in. Watch out for them. But here it is. Listen, listen. Watch out. You don't become like them or find yourself one of them. And so here's what he does first to help us so the seeds of the faith, he gives us three events to evaluate. Christians must contend for the faith because the past proves that imposters will always be present. In this middle part of this letter, Jude is going to equip us in learning to spot them. But like I said, don't, don't just kind of move past that, move deeper into it. More importantly, he's going to ensure that we don't become one of them. And so here's where he focuses first. He gives us an illustration, an event um, from apostate Israel. Apostate Israel. You'll notice how he begins in verse five. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Here he draws our attention to a picture of unbelief, but it's a, a fascinating picture to consider. You see, the first picture is meant to remind us that God's judgment will come, listen, even on those who once lived within the bounds of the assembly of God's people the church, if you will, the community of faith. These were people, remember, who are recipients of God's grace. That's what he draws our attention to first. He says, don't, don't you see, God had delivered these people out of Egypt. They had experienced God's grace. They had tasted and seen, listen, that the Lord was good. Look how good this God is. It was undeniable, they had seen it supernaturally, they were miraculously delivered from bondage. And Jude actually makes a stunning claim here, I don't know if you picked up on this, that way back then during the exile, what they rejected was the ministry of Jesus. Did you see that? That's fascinating. It was the ministry of Jesus. By the way, the exile is paradigmatic in the word of God. Throughout the word of God, the exile is always used as a picture pointing towards the greater spiritual exile that all of humanity needs to experience in Jesus Christ. We need to be liberate, liberated from bondage. We need to be freed from the power of sin and Satan. 
And so here he he actually says what they rejected was Jesus. They rejected true salvation. They experienced a physical salvation, but they were rejecting true spiritual deliverance. Do you see the point? So they appeared to be the people of God, but in reality, they were not the people of God. Their sin was the sin of unbelief. God had saved, God spoke, God even settled in their midst, but they refused to believe God's word. They were faithless. And they above all people were privileged. Part of Jude's point is, if anybody should have known better, it was them. I mean, they had tasted, they had seen, they had experienced, but then they had determined that God was not good enough for them. His word was not sufficient for them. They quickly turned on God. If you know the history of Israel, as they're out into the the desert, they quickly turn on God. They turn away from him instead of to him. Numbers 14 really drives this home. If you're taking notes to so go back and maybe look at this later, they could not enter the promised land, right? They could not find full and ultimate rest. God would refuse to allow them because of their unbelief. Here's the point for you and me. Listen, it's possible to experience God's grace. It's possible to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's possible to be inside the boundaries of the community of faith, listen, but not truly believe. It's possible to look the part. It's possible even to think you're a part. But in reality, listen, what's being exposed here, that there are many Many who look like this, many who act like this, who are truly characterized by unbelief, hard-heartedness, a rejection of God and his word. And by the way, no one is immune. This highlights for us the importance of faith and belief and to daily even take God at his word. Why? Because you reap what you sow. You see, these people experienced judgment. They didn't really believe. They had every opportunity to believe. They rejected God, and they experienced the judgment of God. They could not enter his rest. First example, first event to evaluate right there. Second one is this, autonomous angels. He moves next to autonomous angels, and he references, again, something fascinating here. He says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. God's people fade from view here and in its place we get a glimpse behind the heavenly curtain. We get to consider and to ponder some things that are in many ways beyond our reach and scope of understanding. God will not only judge those who have experienced his grace, catch this, and rejected him, but also those who have seen his glory and rejected him. I mean, you think it's bad to be a part of the community of faith and reject God? Imagine what it's like to be a holy angel of God who lived in the presence of God's glory, to have seen him face to face the way they did, to be used by him the way they were used by him, and to still turn their back against him. Now, by the way, this isn't, I don't believe, referring to the initial fall uh, from heaven. I don't believe that's what's being referred to. It's possible, but it's more than likely beyond that. You'll notice he links it in verse 7. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve an example. Now, there's an indication here, again, that this isn't talking explicitly about the fall from heaven, although that's bad enough. It's actually po- possibly referring to and likely referring to an event that occurred um, after the fall from heaven, a choice made by certain angels. And the idea here is that some of the angels failed to show a respect for God's created uh, boundaries and order. They rejected the authority of God and they embraced instead autonomy from God. God, we're not going to listen to you. You're not our master anymore. We're denying your authority in our lives. We're gonna live autonomous from you. We'll be our own gods. The word there is interesting. They did not stay. It's the same word used for keep in verse one. They didn't keep within their own positions of authority. They wanted what they wanted and what they certainly did not want was God. Now, it says, they are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Again, 
Listen, most of the angelic realm that fell from heaven roams the earth and is wreaking havoc upon the earth and upon humanity. But here we see this. There is a subset of angelic beings who violated God's commands in such a profound way that they have and they are experiencing at this very moment a unique judgment. They are bound right now in gloomy darkness. They are awaiting a future day of final judgment, but right now they are unique even amongst fallen angels. They violated God's boundaries so sincerely and in such a profound way that God has set them apart in terms of judgment. Now, what is this referring to? Likely, it's referring to Genesis 6 verse 4, where it says that the sons of God, which is often used as another term for angels, um, sons of God, they transgressed their proper domain. And what had taken place, what appears taken place, and by the way, um, this is um, um, the ancient Jewish belief as well. If you read Jewish commentaries, this is what they believed happened. Some of these sons of God, these fallen angels, they ended up um, either uh, possessing human beings or somehow procreating with humanity. And you see the idea there is this, they indulged their lust, they indulged their sexual desires, and they did so in such a way as to cross even the boundaries of species. It was a heinous act. And the message is clear. Whenever, listen, we find ourselves succumbing to the temptations to live autonomously from God, to do whatever we want, to reject the authority of God, to remove any notion of submission to God, we are in effect waging war against heaven and we are actually inviting the judgment of God. That's a stunning reality. What it is also saying is that there are some judgments that are more severe than others. Listen, you reap what you sow. And he holds out this event to demonstrate just that. Listen, God, God is not going to withhold judgment on fallen angels. He's not going to hold judgment on sinful Israel, unbelieving Israel. And lastly, he gives us this example. He calls us to consider immoral Sodom. Immoral Sodom. We read the verse already a couple of times now. And again, just note this, this serves as an example. They do by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Don't miss what God is doing here. He's showing how they reap what they sow. Jude now draws us into this familiar historical account. Even the secular world uh, knows in some sense the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's taken from Genesis 18 through 19. And we're reminded that um, there was a night that Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, he took an angelic visitor who had been sent by God to destroy those cities because of their wickedness. He, he took um, these, this angel into his home, these visitors into his home. And by the way, in this story, there's no indication that Lot uh, thought that they were anything but human travelers. There's no indication that he knew that they were more than human beings, that they were actually angels sent from God. And that night... The men of the city, they gathered at Lot's door and they desired to take these visitors for themselves. Sodom and Gomorrah was a place that was rife with self-indulgence, unrestrained appetites, never satisfied desires and longings. Sin was running rampant with no end in sight. It was a place that was so destructive in terms of how sin had been evolving in their midst. I mean, so much so that later on in Scripture and years after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by raining down fire and brimstone, it says in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. One commentator, just kind of putting these ideas together, says this, that sexual immorality is the eager companion of the affluent society. 
Listen, those who gorge themselves without restraint are headed towards God's punishment. The men there intended to forcefully engage in homosexual activity. I mean, this was a gang rape situation of these two men who were sent as messengers of God. Yeah, maybe they didn't know that's who these men were, but that doesn't change the significance of what was taking place. They were so twisted and distorted in their desires, in their affections, that they were willing to go after these men and do whatever they wanted to them. I mean, you gotta think of how gross and serious this is. It's not just that they were trying and asking. Listen, God struck them with blindness, and it says in the word of God that in their blindness, they were groping in blindness, clawing at the door, still trying to appease their sinful fleshly desires. I mean, this is wickedness of a sort, I think, that is hard to comprehend, and yet at the same time, it doesn't sound that unfamiliar to our day, does it? I mean, in their blindness and in their sin, they're screaming for more. It's not enough. I want what I want, and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Listen, self-indulgence and sexual sin are hallmarks of a godless culture. They always have been, and they always will be. Babylon, in the book of Revelation, is described by two dominant sins, greed and sexual immorality. It's amazing how those two things go together, and they fuel each other. Self-indulgence, I want what I want, I deserve more. What's the point? The point is this, that there is no end to the wickedness of man. No sin he will not pursue if not given the chance. And you reap what you sow. God removed them, destroyed them, and that's why Jude says this in verse eight. Did you notice what he says there? He says, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He now takes this example, he takes these events, and he draws these these false teachers in their midst, and he pulls them together, and he shows us how they're actually one and the same. And interestingly, in verse 8, we see that it's not just what these men are willing to do, it's how they're willing to justify it. It seems that they're actually using God to justify their behavior, which actually ratchets up the intensity here and the seriousness of the offense. In like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. You see, you see what, what does that mean? Well, he could just be saying, oh, they're dreamers. They're just, they're, they're just kind of doing whatever they want. More than likely, here's what's actually happening. These individuals are claiming authority from God. They're saying, God, God told me, I had a dream. You see, they're trying to root and ground their behavior and their theology in God's authority. Listen, it is always a red flag whenever somebody comes up and says, God told me, and what they say is not in the scriptures. It's a red flag regardless, okay? God told me I had a dream. I mean, you just get super careful when everybody does that. I mean, that's very hard to argue with, isn't it? They're claiming divine authority, and then what they're doing with this divine authority is they're leading not only themselves into sin and self-indulgence, they're leading others along with them. That's the seriousness here. All for the sake of selfish gain and sinful indulgence. Here are the signs of a false teacher. Listen, this is what we see in these examples. Immorality, autonomy, a rejection of God's authority, and full-on apostasy. It's what they will secretly be, and it's what they will secretly encourage. They may look the part for a time, but inevitably these things come to the forefront. It's the mark of an unbeliever. It's the mark of a false believer. Eventually, you can't hide who you truly are. Eventually, these things, they bubble up to the surface. They show their ugly head, and they show you who you truly are. These kind of people will not obey, they will not submit, and they will not believe. It says here that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Again, this just heightens kind of the intensity of what's taking place. It's possible to see this as they're, they're, they're diminishing angelic beings, or they're speaking poorly, or they're trying to claim an authority over them. There's, there's these kind of ideas. That's possible. I believe more than likely it's pointing to what the scriptures point to, is that um, the, the law of God was actually delivered by angels to Moses. And so, so th- those messenger beings sent by God deliver the law, and what it says, they're decrying and blaspheming these angelic hosts. Really what he's saying is this, essentially, if this is true, he's saying, listen, they are full on rejecting the word of God. 
This is the heart of sin, unbelief, a refusal to accept God's word, God's law, and thus to become a law unto yourself. And instead of being like them, this is the really encouraging part. I know this is heavy, okay? This is super heavy stuff. And just the nature of this letter is so heavy. It weighs upon us. But there is hope here. There is light here. He looks at verse 9 and he says, listen, I want to give you an example of how to be godly, how to not be like these men. Here's what you need to follow. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He is essentially saying, Michael is everything these guys are not. You need to avoid being like these men, flee from them, and you need to look at what he did, how he behaved, how he acted, and you need to go that way. Now, um, maybe you're reading this and you're saying, what in the world is going on? What is he even talking about? Jude here is drawing upon a well-known piece of apocryphal literature, literature that's not included in the Bible, that's outside of the Bible, it's not um, inspired by God, it wasn't included in what we call the canon of scripture. It's from a a piece of common uh, contemporary literature called the Assumption of Moses, or the Testimony of Moses. It would have been something that was commonly read in most Jewish homes. It was a widely known piece of literature. And so Jude is like, he's just a faithful preacher. He, he does what most preachers do. He draws upon contemporary issues, contemporary known pieces of literature, things like that. This happens all throughout the scriptures, by the way. And he uses it to bolster his point and to illustrate the point. Now, he is not making a judgment on whether or not this is true, But it's possible that this is exactly what happened, that God had um, given clarity as to what this was, what actually took place when Moses died. Um, If you remember, Moses died on Mount Nebo. We don't have anything in scripture that talks about what happened to his body, but here we get some possible insight, at least tradition, that the point is gonna be drawn out in just a moment. Apparently, when Moses died, there was a dispute over his body. Moses dies and Satan comes to the body of Moses and he actually argues that actually the body belongs to him. And what he's saying is not just the body belongs to him, that Moses belongs to him. He's he's trying to play judge, jury, and executioner. And and in the assumption of Moses, it tells us that the reason that that Moses, or excuse me, Satan believed he had rights to the body of Moses is because he was a murderer, right? He murdered an Egyptian. That's what caused him to leave Egypt in the first place and then come back and rescue God's people. He's saying he's a murderer. He doesn't deserve to be in your presence. He's mine. I own him. And Michael knows better because he knows the grace and mercy of God. He knows that Moses has been forgiven. He knows about the gospel. He knows the belief that Moses has, the trust and faith that he has demonstrated in God. And he knows that Satan is wrong, but Michael refuses to play God. That's the point. Satan wants to play God and his judgment is coming. Michael the archangel, the most powerful angel arguably there there is in the Bible, he is sent by God on mission and he refuses to exercise any authority outside of God's authority. He believes God, he submits to God, and he obeys God. Do you see that? That's the point. And he says, be like him. Be like him. Michael is contrasted with these people in verse 10. He says, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He says, listen, they are like animals who simply follow after their sinful fleshly desires. They are ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, as Paul might say. And they would reap what they sow. You see, playing God invites the judgment of God. But believing, submitting to, and obeying God invites the blessing of God. And that's what he's calling us to do as we contend for the faith He's saying, listen, be like this. Believe, have faith, trust in God. Submit your life to him. Let him be your master and your Lord and live as if he is. Obey him, follow his every word. Trust it completely. Do what he says to do, even when it's hard, even when your flesh is fighting you on it. Do what God says to do. He holds out to us these three events to evaluate, and now he's gonna do more of the same. He's gonna give us now three characters to consider. And again, he's, he's really just piling on here, so if this sermon sounds a little bit repetitive, forgive me. I'm just following Jude's tracks here, okay? 
This is, listen, repetition is the key to learning, okay? Jude knows that, and he's driving this in in every way he can. It's so important to get. So he says, hey, I want you to look at these three characters in the Bible, and you're going to see much of the same thing here. And so he first draws our attention to faithless Cain. Faithless Cain, so much like faithless Israel. It says this in verse 11, woe to them, there's the judgment language again, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Three individuals, the first one, faithless Cain, the way of Cain. He says, consider the way of Cain. There was a pattern in Cain's life. There was a way in which he walked. There was a kind of lifestyle that became characteristic. God would speak clearly. Cain would do what he wanted. And in Genesis 4, 3 through 7, I'll throw it on the screen behind me so you can just see this firsthand to see what he's referring to. Remember, um, people in the ancient world would have been familiar with this. Many of you are too. It says this, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Jewish commentaries on the story um, of Cain and Abel regarded Cain as an example of unbelieving cynicism. All the way back into the ancient world, that's how they marked out Cain. Abel, on the other hand, is identified, even in Hebrews chapter 11, by his faith. He believes. He trusts God. He hears the word of God. He obeys. Cain is the exact opposite, and that's what Jude is honing in on. Jude, or excuse me, Cain, he, 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 before, by the way, he became a murderer. Just think about this for a second. God had given him a message. God spoke to him. God instructed him. God preached to him. God came alongside to him. God gave him every opportunity to do the right thing, right? He couldn't blame God. He heard. God taught him what was acceptable behavior, what was unacceptable behavior. He was accountable to the God who had spoken. And the fact that Cain committed a violent act of murder tells us that in the end, Cain had simply rejected God's word. I will not believe it, God. I don't care what you say. Your word doesn't matter to me. I will live however I want to live. And there were consequences for that action. Cain became a wandering fugitive for the rest of his life. God had mercy and grace on him, but there were significant consequences for him in his life. His shame would follow him around. He's used as an example because he had God's word and he simply decided to do whatever he wanted. This is my, my heart. This pains my heart because this, sound, this sounds like so many people who call themselves Christians, doesn't it? Like they have God. We have God's word. God has spoken. God is speaking. People hear this all the time. They read it. They look over it. They consider it. They sit in churches. They listen to things on the radio or on, on the internet. They hear God's word and then they choose to take God's word and to chuck it on the ground and do whatever they want. They don't care about God's word. They act like they do. They pretend like they do, but they don't. Their life betrays what they truly believe. God's word isn't important. God's word isn't the authority. God isn't who he says he is. God doesn't care about sin. God doesn't care about how I live my life. That is a falsehood. That is an error. That is deceptive. That is of the devil. God cares because he cares about his glory. He cares about his people. He cares about your soul. He cares so deeply. You can't pick and choose what's convenient in the word of God, okay? You just can't do it. Take it all. You can't dismiss stuff because the culture will think you're an idiot. You can't compromise on it because you're gonna be persecuted. You can't do it. And if you do, you wanna know what you may be demonstrating? You don't love the God of the word. 
It's time to buckle up. It's time to get serious about your faith. Can you hear Jude screaming that to the people of God? It's start to time to contend for the faith. It's start to fight for this. Fight harder. Fight harder. Dig the roots in deeper. You reap what you sow. He looks at greedy Balaam. Greedy Balaam. Again, Balaam, another famous figure in the Old Testament. A prophet spoke the word of God. And by the way, he's going one step further here. He's escalating things, okay? He goes one step further from Cain, he, he, who knowingly rebels, right? But by the way, Balaam knowingly rebels, and then he encourages others to do so as well. Like the angels of God, Balaam was a messenger for God. He was a mouthpiece for God. God spoke to him, through him, for the people. He was supposed to deliver these messages faithfully. He had a unique intimacy with God because of this prophetic relationship. And he even, by the way, for a time, delivered the message of God required of him, regardless of the cost to his own life. Numbers 22 through 24 expands on this entire account. So if you want to check back in later to verify this account, please go there. For now, we're going to kind of kind of sum up the story and just hammer home the point of it. Eventually though, listen, while Balaam was faithful for a season, again, keep note of this, Balaam's greed eventually got the better of him. He was a prophet for hire. It's how he was making his living and his downfall came through a love of money and an openness to sensuality. Again, it's, it's no, listen, no mistake that self-indulgence and greed and sexual immorality typically go hand in hand. Both are fueling the desire for self in massive ways. His fleshly desires were unrestrained. He led God's people into sin for the sake of selfish gain. Again, Balaam, a prophet for hire, turned against God at one point in his life. And instead of blessing God's people as the word of God clearly does, he cursed them because a foreign king promised to pay him handsomely for it. He's like, uh, I can't, I can only say what God says. This is Balaam at one point in his life. I'm going to be faithful. God's word is this. This is what God's word says. Do whatever you want. You don't have to pay. I don't care about the money. And then slowly but surely over time, listen, this doesn't happen overnight, but one step further away from the truth, he begins to compromise. He begins to slide. And he gets to a point in his life where he says, listen, well, if you pay me enough, I'll say and do whatever you want me to do with God's word. God's response? Well, interestingly, by the way, here, here's exactly what he told God's people to do. He reversed his position in counseling them towards blessing, and he counseled God's people to engage in orgies and sensuality with the foreign women of Midian. He threw God's word out the window. He taught what would satisfy the people and their fleshly desires. And he did so to top up his own bank account. And the consequence was this, listen, that he would be wiped out by God's people while living in the midst, where he chose to live, in the midst of a godless, greedy, sexually immoral city. God would send his people in to exact judgment. Balaam was living in their midst, and every male was wiped out for their sin, including Balaam. You reap what you sow. And then he gives us this last example of prideful Korah. Prideful Korah Another picture of autonomy, faithlessness, self-indulgence. Another famous Old Testament story, and this, by the way, is the culmination of his argument. He saves this for last because he wants it to pack the most punch. He moves to the partial obedience of Cain, the subtle undermining of Balaam, and now into full-scale rebellion and revolt by Korah. It's a story that's found in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a leader um, in the people of God as they wandered in the wilderness. And what he did was he, he rallied other leaders together and he instigated a full-scale revolt which actually ends in total judgment. 
He gets this bright idea into his head that Moses shouldn't be the leader of God's people. The one who is chosen by God, the mediator between God and his people, Moses, he is rejected by Korah. He thinks he's better than Moses. He believes that he ought to be the one leading the charge. So he goes and he stirs up the other leaders and says, hey, 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 hey how about we take charge here? We don't gotta listen to Moses. Now listen, what he's saying is this. It's not just we don't have to listen to Moses, we don't have to listen to God. That's what he's saying. Moses is the representative of God. He's like, I, we don't need this, we can do this. And so they challenge the leadership of Moses and challenge the leadership of God and they set this, up, this whole thing up where they say, well, let's let God choose whom he has chosen to lead. He's thinking pretty highly of himself. This is a dangerous game to play. And he's standing there with 250 people that he's rallied together and all of a sudden, the judgment of God falls upon him and the land opens up like a giant mouth and swallows him and the 250 people that he had rallied against Moses and against God himself swallowed them whole and closed up behind him. That's a powerful statement. Right? Well, maybe just an earthquake conveniently hit. It's the judgment of God, supernaturally. And the point is so profoundly clear. Rebellion against the Lord will end in destruction. Listen, just hear this. Rebellion against the Lord will end in destruction. It will, it will, it will. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you want to believe. Rebellion against the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the sole authority in the universe will end only in one place, and that is total and utter destruction and punishment. Korah leads himself into destruction and he rallies people to follow him into destruction. Can you see the parallel with these false teachers in their midst at this time? You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And the call of Jude is this to the people of God. Get on your feet. It's time to fight. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly lest you follow them. Contend earnestly lest you become one of them. And he leaves us then with this, three principles to ponder. Three principles to ponder. And, and again, there's, there's gonna be virtually nothing new here that he says, but let's just see how this unfolds. The first principle to ponder is this. Listen, sin is subtle. Sin is subtle. Look at verse 12. He wants you to see the subtleness of how this happens in terms of how false teachers sneak in, but in terms of how sin creeps in too, into your midst. These, he says, are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Love feast was possibly, likely, um, a gathering that they had as believers where they would eat together, a very intimate setting, you know, as friends and family members in the church, likely celebrating the Lord's table together, possibly. At the very least, listen, it was intimate, it was personal, it was Christian fellowship at the max where they were celebrating God. And here these false teachers are sitting at the same table, saying they love the same God, acting the part, playing the part with them. You see how subtle this is? And he says they're hidden reefs. Now the language here is so beautifully profound and so weighty and serious, but the, the, the analogy, the imagery he uses, I mean, they're hidden reefs, right? You, you don't know how dangerous a reef is and you can't see the reef oftentimes until you've run into it and the boat or the vessel you're on is utterly destroyed. They feast with, with you without fear. I mean, they're, they're in your midst and they're not worried about being found out. They have slipped in. They have pulled the wool over your eyes. Like, this is the idea here. They're so deceptive. This is the nature of sin. It's so deceptive. It creeps into your life and you don't even see it. You don't even realize it's there. You're going along like everything's fine. And Satan's pulled the wool over our eyes sometimes. We can't see. He reaches back into Ezekiel, this powerful image. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. There's the motivation. There's the intention. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's, it may seem like it's all about you, but it's not. I, I will take advantage. 
Right, that's a bad analogy because he's talking about leaders. Um, you know, they're, they're there and they're like, they're gonna take advantage of the people. They're gonna fleece the sheep. Right? The sexual immorality is gonna be pervasive. They're gonna use, use the people of God for their own sexual appetites. They're gonna steal from the people of God to line their own pockets. It's all about them. It's all about them. That's the idea here. No fear. They're like waterless clouds swept along by the winds in a dry and arid climate. You see a cloud coming and you're like, good, we need rain. It's life-giving, but they're like a dry and waterless cloud. I mean, it seems like, it seems like it should have rain. It's coming our way. It gives the appearance of bringing life-giving water, but in the end, it's swept away and there's no life to be found there. They're like fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. You know, it's like walking up to a a beautiful apple tree in autumn at harvest time and you expect to reach up and pluck off a nice, firm, juicy apple. It looks like it should be life-giving, but when you walk up, all you have is rotten fruit. There's nothing life-giving at all. In fact, the tree is dead right down to its roots and it needs to die twice. It needs to not just stay there dead. It needs to be pulled out of the ground and thrown into the fire. They're like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. These beautiful waves that wash up under the shore, but they're filled with polluted foam and dirt and garbage, and they leave nothing but garbage and filth in their wake. They're like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They're like a shooting star that appears like it's going somewhere, but in the end, it goes into nothingness, an empty void. And if you follow them along, you'll end up in the same place. They reap what they sow. We will reap what we sow. These people are not easy to spot and neither is our sin. We can do God's work for a season, even fight our flesh for a season. We can even appear to have victory for a season. Listen, but if we're not careful, like Balaam, we can give way to our self-indulgence. Like Cain, we can hear God's word and we can turn from it. Like Korah, we can think we know better and that we should play the role of God. We can cast off all restraint. Our desire to serve the flesh can become stronger than our desire to walk in the spirit. And if you think you can't, be careful. You're already on the path of doing so. I mean, this, the, the frightening thing about the pic, this picture of apostasy and these pictures of apostasy is what it reveals. I mean, what can happen then, what happened in the past, happened then, and it can happen to us today. Nobody is immune from this, not you and not me. And if you don't believe me, just look at Christian news in the last few weeks. Two prominent evangelical influential leaders who defected from the faith. One who would have been in our stripe of theology, in our stream of evangelicalism, Joshua Harris. He wrote books. He spoke at conferences. He was a mega church pastor. He proclaimed the gospel as clearly and faithfully as anybody I can think of. And yet now he stands up and says, I'm leaving my wife and I do not believe the word of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. I'm leaving it all. And if you think that's scary, I could go through a Rolodex of people right now who are at one point in our, I sat down and talked to somebody in our church yesterday of people who have been in our church, who have left our church, and now are not even going to church. And years and years go by, not going to church, not seeking the Lord, right? not reading his word, not falling on their face in dependence. Like if you don't think it can happen to you, watch out. This is this terrifying reality. And it reminds us of the importance of fighting now, while today is still today. Like, don't ever let a day go by where you're not saying, Lord, help me to fight now. God, help me to take advantage of today. God, do not let me grow apathetic or complacent. God, if I am in this place, show it to me. Show it to me. But beg you, God, beg God, beg God every day to hold fast to you and to open your eyes to your own blindness. And thank God every day you are able to walk faithfully with him and for him to the glory and honor of his name. It's a gift. It's a gift. The second principle to ponder is this. Judgment is inevitable. And here Jude, the preacher, quotes from another well-known piece of contemporary Jewish literature to illustrate 
improve his point. Now, we have no record of Enoch's prophesy, prophecy. He, he quotes from Enoch, um, from the book of First Enoch, again, apocryphal literature that he's not trying to suggest is scriptural. He's not saying that what he's going to quote is untrue. In fact, everything he says from the book of Enoch can be substantiated in other places in the word of God. Now, we have no record of Enoch's prophecy other than what we read here in Jude. But Enoch here clues us into maybe some of the teachings that were being propagated in the church there. And, and here's the kind of teachings that they were maybe espousing, the likely espousing based on what we know and what we see. Listen, here, here it is. Just listen. Let me know if this sounds in any way familiar. God is a God of love, not wrath. God would never condemn anyone. No person or behavior can really be called ungodly. Unconditional love must mean that God places no demands on his children. Entering into a relationship with Christ doesn't require any meaningful life change. These are the kind of things they were saying. This was the way they were living. So using First Enoch, Jude wants his listeners to see that even in the literature of their own day, the literature they were familiar with, the things they read in their homes, in all of even that literature, the ungodly exist and judgment is inevitable towards them. So he quotes from First Enoch, likely the book of Enoch, and here's what he says. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he's just trying to designate which Enoch this is, because there's two mentioned in the book of Genesis, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Now, here's what I want you to pay attention to. The theme of judgment, but I want you to, there's, there's two words that are used four times in this, these two verses. Here it is, the word all or every. Okay, that's the first word. And then the second word that's used is ungodliness. Follow this. Let it stand out to you. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds or ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, here's what you need to know from this. These terms remind us that judgment is both universal and moral. There is none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us is a sinner who deserves the judgment and wrath of God. Every one of us falls short of the glory of God. Every one of us rightly deserves this kind of punishment and judgment, and it is a moral assessment of our lives. We are, by nature, ungodly. We live in ungodly ways. These men are ungodly. These teachers are ungodly, but this does not remove any of us from this picture. And you see, as you look at this, what he wants to drive home is this, that if you believe you will not answer to God, you will inevitably cut yourself loose from the standards of God, okay? If you believe that you will not ultimately give an account to God, you will inevitably cut yourself loose from the standards of God. I'm not going to answer to God, I'll just do what I want, who cares? This is the assumption of many well-meaning people today, God will not do what he says. God really, God's too loving, he can't, he's not going to punish people. He's not going to judge the way he says he will. God's not that serious about sin. You see, we distort the God of the word so we can dismiss the word of God. And in using Enoch, he actually does this kind of implicitly. He sets up another example to follow. Because if you know anything about Enoch, you know this, that the word of God tells us that Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. Enoch lived in a day of unrighteousness, in a day of ungodliness, yet he had such character that people described him as walking with God. And remember that although he lived in an ungodly hour, listen, there came a time where he was delivered from it. And he no longer was found on the earth. He was ushered into the presence of God. Where, does this righteous, where did this righteous man go? That's exactly where. He went right to the presence of God, where he now dwells happily forevermore. He is encouragement for us to remain faithful. You reap what you sow, listen, both negatively and positively. He didn't earn his salvation. He just lived a life that demonstrated the reality of his salvation. And that leaves us in this final place, grace is available. Grace is available. 
And with all this heaviness maybe sitting upon us, he ends with a heavy statement here. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain an advantage. It's all about them. They care nothing about God. These people are destructive and dangerous. Flee from them and don't be one of them. These men, he says, here's what they're like. Here's the problem. We are like them in so many ways. And what makes us so different what hope is there for people like this? You know, I, I can't help but think, like, you know, as you're thinking, like, this is, this is heavy. Like, how, how then can I be okay with God? Well, I want you to consider uh, what, what I think is one of the most profound verses in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Again, I know you're probably really familiar, but just in light of everything we've looked at, just let this sink in. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I, I am hopeless. I am ungodly. I deserve the judgment of God. And to you, I would say, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Listen, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I think the more likely response for all of us is this, and such were all of us. And every one of us has our problems. Every one of us has our sins. Every one of us is ungodly in many ways. But the hope is found right here. You were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is only one who did not reap what he sowed. Did you know that? Only one who did not deserve the judgment he received. And his name was Jesus Christ. Only one who is so perfect and so righteous that he deserved to be in the presence of God with nobody ever paying for his sins because he didn't have any. And he, the only righteous one, the God of this universe, stepped into this filthy muck of humanity, the destruction of sin, and he became sin for us. He hung, he died, he suffered. He took upon himself the judgment of God, unleashing the fury of his wrath upon his own son. Jesus, in our place, says, I'll take it all. I'll take what I don't deserve so you can have what you don't deserve. Grace, grace, grace. Listen, justice and wrath need not fall on you. Consequences of sin need not define you. Sin does not need to control you. You can be forgiven and you can be set free if you fall on your face before Jesus in repentance and faith. If you do what he calls you to do from this text, if you believe that only he could pay for your sins and deliver you from the power and bondage of sin and the judgment for it, if you submit to him as your Lord and master, and if you obey him, by the power of his spirit and the grace of God that is now given to you in Christ Jesus, then you can have a life of meaning, purpose, and joy with your Savior. Joshua Harris, this once influential teacher of God's word, once influential evangelical leader, author, I was watching a Q&A. So one of the small group leaders in our church sent me. We were talking about this earlier, trying to figure out, what do you do with a guy like this? I mean, by the way, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Say, every year that goes by, I could point to somebody like this. Every year. So what? I watched a, a little video of John Piper talking. He was asked this question. You know, what do you do with a guy like this? And he just went through a list of people. Like, look, there's nothing new. And at the end of it, you know what he said was so profound? You know, if you're, you're looking, he's like, man, this guy, he's gone, going, going straight to judgment, straight to hell. You know what he says? He says, maybe you're thinking that even about yourself. Maybe you think that about people in your life, right? They're so far gone. I've tried to preach the gospel. There's no hope for them. John Piper, he, he said this so profoundly. He said, you know what? It's not over yet. It's not over yet. There's still time. There's still time. This is not the end of the story. Listen, the prodigal son is a story of someone who was with the father, left and came back again. If that's you today, maybe God is calling you and he's saying, it's not over. The story's not over. It doesn't have to end in judgment and condemnation for you. Jesus can take it all. Come to me today and I will welcome you with open arms. 
If you have a child who is far from Christ, if you have a loved one who is wandering, listen, it is. Some of you are testimonies of this today. You're here because you know it wasn't over for me. Listen, don't give up hope. Fight for the faith. Contend for the faith in your life, in the lives of those who are being led astray into sin and error. Fight to protect the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us what is necessary for this. We confess, oh God, that we are weak and needy. God, we confess that what we deserve is judgment and punishment. But God, what we get is grace and forgiveness. And God, I pray that that truth would overwhelm our hearts this morning. God, I think, I think of John the Baptist who God declared a message to the people of God, repent, turn. And God, most profoundly, as John the Baptist looked and saw Jesus walking towards him, he summed up the entire reality of the gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Even now, oh God, we would see that he was the one who took judgment in our place. He was the one who took our sin upon his shoulders. And God, as he rose from the grave in newness of life, we now stand in the newness of his life. God, for any who do not have that, God, call out to them even now. God, drive them to their knees. Help them, Lord, to believe. Give them faith, Lord, right now in Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And God, I pray that you would grant even this morning the gift of new life, new hope, and new joy in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.